Matt Wilson, quarterback draw on third and 15. 20, 15, 10. Oh, he's going to go. Five touchdown Cougars. Down the lane, back to Yo. Yo on the arc, shoots a three and scores it. Yogi Childs for three. To the right, putting a shot on goal. It is a goal for Elise Blake. This is Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. And now, here's Greg Rubel. Hello and good evening, Cougar Nation. Welcome inside Studio 2 in the BYU Broadcasting Building on the Brigham Young University campus in Provo, Utah, for our latest edition of Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel. 60 minutes featuring two in-depth conversations with BYU sports personalities past and present. We are with you tonight on BYU Radio, heard around the country via satellite on Sirius XM 143. We are also heard along the Wasatch Front on 107.9 FM and 89.1 FM HD2. You can stream our show online at byuradio.org and on the BYU Radio app. If you'd like to listen later, you'll find us on our Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel podcast and at byuradio.org with all of our archives located on the show page there. On tonight's show, we hit the links and then the hardwoods as I visit with longtime BYU men's golf coach Bruce Brockbank and the fourth all-time leading scorer in BYU basketball history, former All-American and first-round NBA draft pick Michael Smith. Mike featured in our Catching Up with the Cougars segment brought to you by BYU alumni. But we start tonight's show with my first guest, who as a golfer at BYU, was a two-time All-Wax selection and All-America honoree. He won the Utah State Am twice, once as a Cougar and once as a recent BYU graduate. A two-time amateur golfer of the year in the state of Utah, Bruce Brockbank turned pro and while doing so assisted the great Carl Tucker on the BYU coaching staff. Upon Carl's retirement in 1992, Bruce took the reins of the BYU program and has since led the Cougars to six conference titles, while his golfers have appeared in nine NCAA championships. Bruce has coached more than two dozen All-Americans and many more All-Conference honorees, while his teams have nine times won three or more tournaments in a single season. Bruce's career tournament win total is among the highest in the NCAA coaching profession. This season's BYU team has already recorded a win and three top fives in their first three tournaments as the Cougs look to win another WCC crown and advance to regionals and hopefully the NCAAs again next spring. It is my pleasure to welcome in BYU men's golf head coach Bruce Brockbank behind the mic. Hello, Bruce. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. Good to have you with me. So Provo has been home for you for a long time, yes? It sure has. It's... Uh... I was uh, born in Provo, moved to Salt Lake for a couple of years, and then uh, back to Provo. And other than a two-year mission, just uh, right here in Happy Valley. Were you a typical kid in that you kind of played everything growing up? And when did golf begin kind of to take a a zeroed-in focus from you? You know, I I, uh, loved to play a lot of the sports, but a lot of those sports were done in the front yard. But I found out really early, uh, you know, my dad was— pretty connected with the BYU golf team. And so that was something that uh, when I was seven or eight years old, I really took a, a liking to was was golf because of a lot of the men's uh, golfers. Um, that was something that had an interest. And I found out really early that, uh, you know, I was, a, I was a decent athlete. I could play the sports pretty well. But to, you know, to get into high school and, and maybe make a team, I was probably just a little bit under the radar. And then I remember playing a junior high football game where I was, you know, I was playing defense and this kid was, he was running the ball and I was just going to really smack him. And and I'll tell you what, I hit him as hard as I possibly could. And I remember getting up and I, and I can, I can remember it like it was yesterday. I thought that'll do it. I think I'm going to play golf. Which high school did you attend? I was at Timview High School. Played high school golf there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were uh, fortunate. My second year, uh, sophomore year, we were runner-up my freshman year, and then we won three in a row uh, team championships. And I think, you know, you, you talk about that, and then Tim, you kind of went on a run for a while, but you have to give credit where credit's due. Our golf professional at Riverside Country Club was Bill Corns. And he was just a fabulous professional. We had, you know, a lot like some of the successful programs now, you know, like the Lone Peak team. Um, we were similar at Tempview. Uh, we had quite a run of state championships, and that's because the golf professional was so good with mm. the young people, uh, growing the game, and just really helping uh, when it comes to practice and improving our games as well as uh, the individual. That was uh, our golf professional, Bill Corns. Now, you mentioned Carl. I presume he was recruiting you uh, when you were at Timview. Did he have to work too hard with you? or? 
<laughs> no, he all he had to do was show a little bit of interest, and I was I was all in. You played before serving, right? You got to play a bit before you went on a mission, isn't that right? That's correct. Yes, I played one year, okay. and uh, it was funny because those were kind of the the heyday of our program when Carl was winning championships on a regular basis. I was on what you call the JV team, and at that time, those don't really exist anymore. But I remember as a, a player playing on the second team, we won up in Logan, and then we went down to Las Vegas and won that tournament as the JV, mm-hmm. and then we finished second to the A team at the Cougar Classic. I can remember <laughs> that also like it was yesterday. That shows some depth. For sure. Carl definitely, uh, he had great players uh, at the top, and he also had quite a few really good at the bottom. Who were some of your teammates when you got to the BYU program? You know, the, the names that I remember, Keith Goyan. Keith was one, Eduardo Herrera, Steve Schneider, Mm. Jonathan Baker, uh, and then Brent Franklin came in when I was on my mission. But those are some of the names that uh, we'll recognize. And and, um, Rick Fair was also on the team, Robert Meyer. Those were the early years when we were kind of sitting the pine, if you will. Those are are the guys that were here. And then uh, post-mission, you then, I guess, three more seasons in, right? Right. And then okay. after that, for um, it was I was an 18-month mission. So I left in October, came back in April. And so I had six, year, or six months to get my game in shape. And uh, from there, we played them all after that. Were those pretty useful six months for you? <laughs> yes. I, I was working pretty needed. hard. Yes, yeah. very much so. With other athletes in other sports, they get asked the same question. What's it like for a golfer to not golf for that long a time, one to two years, and then try and get it all back? It's uh, it's very difficult, you know, because it's such a, a touch and feel game. Um, so it, it takes a little while. But, you, you know, there's as I've found out in my coaching career, you have kids that will come home right away, and it's like they haven't left. There's a very few of those. And then there's kids that come home, and you'll play pretty good, and then you kind of hit that little bit of a lull. And then you come home, and you just can't find it at all, and it takes you about a year to get your game back. Those are kind of the three categories. And I was – I came back and, and struggled a little bit and then kind of slowly started uh, climbing the mountain. As a player, uh, top college memories or accomplishments? You know, I'll tell you, when I, when I got back from my mission, uh, we had Eduardo Herrera and Brent Franklin were both first-team All-Americans. And then Steve Schneider, myself, Jonathan Baker, Jamie Harper, Bill Nickel were some of the teammates there. Uh, we just kind of back and forth um, – played that three, four, five spot. And uh, because those guys, it seemed like every tournament they were shooting 65. <laughs> and so all we had to do was shoot 75. Now it's since changed <laughs> where 75 is not a very good score, <laughs> but I remember shooting 75 and winning tournaments and the guys, we just, you know, we're having a great time. But that's the re- the reason that was is because of uh, those two guys, Franklin and Herrera, shooting 65. I mentioned winning State Am. Uh, you did that twice, uh, once when you were at school and then once after you left. How big a deal was that to you at the time, winning State Am? Yeah, that, that's kind of the highlight for a, for a young amateur, um, for me especially, because Steve Schneider had won it a few years before at a young age. I really, you know, and I saw what that did for his career. I wanted to be a part of that. And so right before I left on my mission, I had lost in the finals. And so I went all the way to the finals and and did some really fun stuff there. And then Glenn Spencer beat me in the finals. It was a great match, and he ended up winning. And then I went on a mission, came back, and uh, lost in the quarters, I think. And then the following year, I lost again in the finals, and then I won a couple in a row. So I was I was fortunate, and it was funny because the state am I just seemed to get a little bit of a rhythm to where started making some putts and found myself uh, winning matches. So it was really a highlight of uh, my career for sure. And then you were able to turn pro while staying associated with the BYU program, right? Mm-hmm. I was uh, Carl's assistant for uh, four years, and I turned pro um, I think a year after. My first, uh, you know, as a graduate assistant, and then I played in the Utah section and uh, helped Carl, and, and those were some great years as well. How do you encapsulate the influence of Carl Tucker on your life and career? Oh, Carl was, uh, you know, we miss him every day just because of, uh, you know, what he brought to the team, if you will. He was so colorful such a great motivator uh, and a great friend. And so it's one of those things where I relied on him a lot those first few years. In fact, I loved when he would come down to the office and, and he'd ask me questions like, what are you doing? You know, and, and, and then he would, uh, 
we would chat it up and and uh, just relive the old memories and he would offer advice and and uh, we would move on and, and just try to get better did you see the head coaching assignment coming did he did he groom you and or let you know this would be happening you know this was uh, that's a great question and uh, appreciate you asking it because he and I used to uh, he ran the ski school for a long time so we would ski in the winter time mm. and uh, there was a time right after I graduated he says hey Bruce he goes I just want you to know if I have anybody if I have any say on who's going to replace me, and it won't be too long, you'd be my number one choice. And so I, I always thought, wait a second, coach. I said, do you realize? I said, I loved college golf, and you're telling me that I got a shot at doing what you've been doing? And um, the rest is history. I was kind of in the right place at the right time. BYU took a chance, and uh, 27 years later, we're still at it. Time for a short break. When we come back, my conversation with Bruce continues. This is Behind the Mic with Greg Grubel, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. More with Coach Brockbank right after this. You're listening to Behind the Mic with Greg Grubel, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. Back on Behind the Mic and our conversation with BYU men's golf head coach Bruce Brockbank continues. And the coaches, you started your BYU head coaching career in the early 1990s. Mike Weir was just concluding his BYU playing career, if the timeline is correct. How did he decide to come to BYU from Canada? The way I uh, recall, Mike was a great young junior player. And uh, he just loved Coach Tucker. You know, he he, um, loved everything about it. I know the skiing part of it was a draw for him. Mm. He was recruited uh, quite heavily by a lot of programs, but uh, he he loved coach and uh, he, you know, he loved the tradition of the program because we'd have so many Canadian players. And then the skiing is, you know, he'll tell you had a little bit of uh, incentive as well, but he knew that he was going to, he was going to get better. And um, we were very fortunate that he chose BYU because as you, as you well know, Mike is, uh, he's not only uh, just a great champion at whatever he does he's just a great guy the miller family and the Summerhays family their family connections to the byu program have been uh, very strong and and paying dividends for decades now haven't they sure have it's uh you know johnny has been such a great not only was he a great player and then a great ambassador as you mentioned he's been I can't say enough about Johnny and the way that uh, he supported our program in so many ways. And to have his son, his his baby, if you will, our director of golf, it's just been— That's a, Todd, right? Yeah, that's yep. Todd. And um, you can't say enough because anytime you need anything or you have— uh, you need some advice, he's right there to be able to help you and—, and um, he did the same thing with his boys. It was, uh, you know, he they all deserve full ride scholarship, but he took half just because he knew, hmm. you know, what the system needed. And, uh, you know, he was about making the program better. It wasn't just about them. It was about the program. Now, you got to coach Johnny's sons. What kind of golf dad was he, so to speak? <laughs> the best of the best, you know. He he was he wanted them to get better, and he knew that they needed to be challenged. And uh, he just kind of stayed away unless you um, needed some help. And then anytime you needed help, he was there. Then the summer hazes. Same type of thing. You know, we were fortunate. Carl was still around when we recruited uh, David Summerhays and Joe Summerhays, which David was Lynn's boy, Lynn and Ann, and uh, Joe was uh, Bruce and Carolyn's. Uh, son. And so Carl kind of got that done. And then I was able to be there and coach them, help them along a little bit. And those were both very competitive kids and helped our program. We won a conference championship with uh, them on the team, may have been two. And uh, then when we had a chance to go out and try to, you know, get Daniel, that has a whole nother story to it, but uh, one that we will forever be grateful that we had a chance to have him come to BYU. So what's the short version of that story? Well, it was it was one of those things where his older brother, Boyd, who's one of the top junior players in the country. Oklahoma it was State. Oklahoma State. And I knew that Daniel was probably going to follow his brother. And so I just, you know, I decided as a young coach, look, I've got to figure out a way to get this kid because he had won a couple of state amateurs in high school, if not close. 
And so, uh, you know, I did everything that I could to try to keep that door open. And, and fortunately enough, a couple of things turned and uh, I was able to uh, be in their home and uh, talk to them about BYU. And, and after a few short minutes, Daniel said, hey, I want to go to BYU and play for Coach Brockbank. So it was one of the great days uh, in my coaching career for sure. Meantime, Bruce's daughter, Carrie, is your counterpart on the women's side. Yes, and, and uh, Carrie, wow, she's doing a phenomenal job. And she's it's fun to watch her because she's so competitive. <laughs> and uh, I'm telling you, she uh, those girls, uh, they follow plan. And uh, they get better every. If you if you uh, come to BYU and Carrie's program, you're going to get better, and you're going to learn to compete for sure. Among so many other things, two great programs on both sides. At BYU, coach, you've rubbed shoulders with uh, lots of players and coaches from the other sports on campus. Which of those players and coaches have the most game on the course? And were or are there any players from any other sport here at BYU that you actually recruited or thought could have played golf here at BYU? Well, that's a great question. I'd have to think about that a little bit, but I'm going to go ahead and mention Chad Lewis can play a little bit. Okay. Okay. Robbie Bosco, he, uh, Robbie, he he gets a few reps in. Yes. Robbie plays very well. In fact, it's fun to go out and play with him because he's always trying to beat you. And uh, I don't like that at all, but he got me, he's got me a couple of times and and, uh, I have to get it turned around real quick so we don't have to hear about it too much. And you know, another guy that can play a little bit is so Brian Santiago, every, you know, he can get hot and and uh, he'll definitely help your team when he's playing with you. Now, players, you mentioned the Lone Peak program. Nick Emery was part of a really good golf program at Lone Peak, too. Of course, he's known for basketball, but he can still swing it, I think, too. Oh, he sure can. Nick is, uh, again, so competitive. But I remember seeing him for the first time. He shot 65 or 66 at Hobble Creek. And I'm thinking, who is this kid? And everybody goes, I ah, don't worry about him. He's going to play basketball. <laughs> The 2018-19 Cougars, a first, a second, and a fourth in your first three tournaments of this season. You have returning all WCC picks, including Peter Quest. What do you think is going to happen this season with your team? Well, you know, we, we've just got uh, – what's been really nice, Greg, is when you graduate kids like Patrick Fishburne and uh, C.J. Lee, you you got to count on the younger kids that have been in the program. And, and uh, fortunately enough this year, we were obviously a little bit vulnerable in our, you know, four and five spot, if you will, with kids that are just didn't have as much experience. But they have, um, you know, including our return missionary, Carson Lundell from Lone Peak, I'll tell you what, to have a kid come home from a mission and do what he's done, it's by far the best that we've ever had at BYU. He's finished sixth individually, second, and then 11th in our last tournament. So that really helps us, especially when you got home in June. And then to have the other kids that uh, have played for us step up, Austin Bands, Kelton Hirsch, um, some of the, the kids that you know didn't play much have kind of stepped into that role and shot some really good scores. And so we're learning, growing. We've still got, I'm sure we'll have plenty of growing pains, but the way we've started off has been a nice surprise for Coach Miller and myself. Your family includes a current player for the Cougars, but not in golf. Yes, and we're really excited about that. Ashton Brockbank, she plays uh, on the women's soccer team, and uh, it's it's been a, you know, she just loves to play soccer, has since she was seven years old. Uh, she's been playing on a club team and the high school team for quite a few years and had some success, and, and uh, Jen opened the door for her. Um, right at the end of last season, and she's been so excited to come to BYU. That's kind of where she wanted to be, a little bit like her dad. Mm-hmm. And maybe I uh, cankered her a little bit, if you will, um, telling her this is the only place to go to school because my other daughters haven't quite felt that way. <laughs> Yet uh, Ashton has, and, and the door opened, and she's taken advantage of that opportunity and loves every minute of it. It's been great to get to know her a bit in my role as the play-by-play broadcaster for that team. we got a couple big games this weekend in the Bay Area. We'll see if the Cougs come back with uh, six points in those two matches. Who else is in your family? And then we'll let you go. Well, my wife, Lisa, she is, uh, you know, she keeps everybody together for sure. We've been together, well, let's see, 30, I want to say 33 years now. That that might uh, come back to bite me. <laughs> but uh, she's just an absolute gem. And then our oldest son is Jordan. He's working at Riverside Country Club uh, as uh, Robert MacArthur is one of his assistant pros, the third assistant. And then uh, Mikkel Brockbank, is. Uh, she just had... Our first grandbaby, her and her husband, James Little, live in uh, San Diego, California. Mackenzie is here at school, just got married to a Carter Blaze. 
and uh, they're studying and try to figure out what they're going to do with uh, their lives. They got married last month. Uh, and then Ashton is our baby. So we're, Lisa and I are trying to figure out how this uh, empty nest works. It's been fun to have you in today and to chat about your life a little bit, your career, and uh, best of luck to you and the team here in the 2018-19 season. Thank you very much. Go Cougars. Go Cougs. All right, that is BYU men's golf head coach Bruce Brockbank. My thanks to Bruce for coming in. Up next, former BYU basketball All-American, NBA first-round draft pick, current NBA broadcaster and pretty darn good golfer himself, Michael Smith. That's our Catching Up with the Cougars segment presented by BYU alumni. And it's coming up after this as Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel continues on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143 and 107.9 FM. You're listening to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. It is time now for our Catching Up with the Cougars segment, brought to you by BYU alumni. Want to help BYU students but don't know how? You can with BYU alumni chapters. Find the chapter that fits you at alumni.byu.edu slash chapters. And tonight... We're catching up with one of the top five scorers, rebounders, and free-throw shooters in BYU basketball history. Indeed, in the annals of Cougar hoops, only Tyler Hawes, Jimmer Fredette, and Danny Ainge scored more points. Only Kyle Collinsworth grabbed more rebounds, and only Haas and Fredette shot a higher percentage from the free-throw line than my next guest, Michael Smith, a native of Southern California. Mike was a triple threat as a high school athlete, excelling in volleyball, football, and, of course, basketball. He came to BYU in 1983 and played a single season of hoops before leaving on a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Upon his return, Michael Smith became a scoring standout for the Cougar Hoopsters, topping 20 points per game in his sophomore, junior, and senior seasons. His junior season in 1987-88 saw BYU get out to a 17-0 start before winning the WAC, finishing 26-6, and making it to the second round of the NCAA tournament. Mike's teams played in the NCAA tourney in three of his four seasons in Provo. In his final campaign at BYU, he averaged better than 26 points a game while shooting 53% from the field and 93% from the free throw line. He ended his BYU career in the top 10 in double doubles. Only Danny Ainge ever had more consecutive double figure scoring games and only Jimmer had more 30 point games. And Mike is one of only six BYU players to have recorded a triple double. Multiple-time All-American, Mike was a first-round draft pick of the Boston Celtics in 1989 and played professionally for a number of years before embarking on a post-hoops career in NBA broadcasting. Twenty years ago, he was inducted into the BYU Athletics Hall of Fame, and it is my pleasure to be joined tonight behind the mic by Michael Smith. Mike, thanks for coming on. <laughs> Greg, thank you. That's, that's quite an introduction. You summed it up just like that. Well, that's it's that and then some for you, and, and I really do appreciate you coming on. I've seen you over the years and had a chance to chat informally, but it's good to have you in this uh, in this setting. I know our listeners are looking forward to hearing from you tonight as well. And you're known as a California kid, uh, Mike, but you were born elsewhere, right? I was born in upstate New York. My family moved to Southern California when I was five, and so you know most of my formative years are in California, and I guess I consider myself a Californian, and, and I've been here now 30 years post-college and working career. You played high school in uh, Hacienda Heights, right? I did. I went to a football high school, believe it or not. We didn't have a great basketball program. Uh, we were one of the few California high schools that had a boys' volleyball program, so although I played baseball up until I was 17 years old. I never played baseball for the school because I just fell in love with volleyball, and it was such a, a different thing, meaning our school was an inland high school some 30 minutes away or 40 minutes away from the beach, but had a boys' volleyball team because of a math teacher who fell in love with the sport and developed the program. And I really think that a lot of my development in, let's call it basketball, which was the sport I chose to pursue professionally, was due to the fact that I played all those other sports. I, I learned a tremendous amount of poise and, you know, just being composed in the moment from playing high school quarterback. You know, volleyball has similar skill sets to basketball. I was a setter at six foot ten, so I think that all those skills helped me see the floor because you're looking across the net as you're setting the ball to your own guys, but you're you're having to read the defense and place the ball in a certain spot and all those things are 
analogous to basketball and how you need to see the floor and move the ball. Of the sports you just mentioned, Mike, was one of them most natural to you, or did you have a natural affinity for one over the other? It's a great question, Greg. I used to think that the reason I was successful in football, and we've won every game in my high school football career but one, and fortunately my senior year we won them all, culminating in Anaheim Stadium and winning a football championship. That was great. But it was the fifth time in 10 years my high school had won the California CIF championship, which would be the equivalent of a state title in Utah. I didn't think I was good at football. I pretty much was like the coach told me what to do, and I read the defense and did, you know, I took what they gave me, and we just beat everybody. And I kind of figured it was because the program was good, and our coaches were smarter than anybody, and we had some great skilled receivers around me, or maybe I was good at it. You know, I was recruited to play football at every school in the country, but I, I chose BYU in basketball. And when I got up to BYU, Steve Young is a senior. So my freshman year coming in, Steve Young is, you know, an All-American. He's breaking records, and we know what he went on to do, MVP and Super Bowl champ and all those things. So when I took a look at him as a freshman at BYU and saw what he could do on the football field, uh, I immediately thought, well, I can't be him. I mean, I, I couldn't. I, I wasn't that quick or that strong or that fast. But I did have an arm. But I don't know. I guess looking back now as an old guy, maybe I'm just kidding myself, but I think I could have probably played college football and probably should have played college football BYU because after my mission, they went through a period of three or two or three years where they didn't have a, you know, a superstar quarterback until Detmer came into his own. But I think volleyball I love the best. Football games were the most fun because of the intellectual aspect of it, like dissecting a defense. And basketball, I was just the most natural at, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And maybe I had played the longest since I was probably five or six years old. When it comes to BYU, how far in front was, was BYU in the recruiting process, and was it a foregone conclusion for you? I always wanted to go there. I, I don't know that it was a foregone conclusion. Frank Arnold did something that was either, it was either smart or it wasn't. But he told everybody, which I probably would have done myself if I were the coach, he told everybody, this kid's uh, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He's not going to go to your school. He's coming to our school. He told everybody that. So these coaches would call me up and say, hey, we hear you're going to BYU. And I go, no, I haven't made up my mind yet. Oh, can we have a visit? So it kind of bothered me because Frank, which, you know, maybe it was an astute move on his part to get rid of those other recruiters, and it bothered me that he was kind of robbing me of that experience to go see these other schools. And, but anyway, I, I went through the whole process, and I kind of set out to prove Coach Arnold wrong and say, no, I'm going to go find a better school if, you know, it's not your right to tell them no for me. And I went through that whole process, Greg, and I ended up, you know, finding out that BYU was the right place for me. And I've never regretted it for one minute. Your freshman season put you on the floor with Devin Durant, in his senior season. And Devin Durant was as good a player in the college game as there was in the country that year in 83-84, right? He was such an example to me and a mentor to me uh, on and off the court. He's the reason I chose BYU. To watch Devin work and play the game was just a thing of beauty. Uh, he's To this day, he's the most humble guy. He would be self-deprecating and say he wasn't good enough or whatever. I mean, he was an electric scorer. He, he could shoot a 16- to 18-foot bank shot, pulling up full speed off the glass. He could do it on the right side, the left side. He ran like a deer. He had these unbelievable, stylish, graceful moves along the baseline. He had great legs. He had great speed. He, he just could slither along the baseline and score and get fouled. You know, we didn't have three-point shots then. And so it's not something he worked on. It's not something... Uh, I think he could have been a three-point shooter, but nobody worked on that. We ran plays to get the ball in the post or get the ball for a 15-foot jump shot or to get the ball to him on the break. But he was awesome. He didn't really have a center, so I you know, had the privilege of starting alongside Devin in that front court. And it was a joy to watch every night, whether it was Georgetown or uh, New Mexico. He was putting up 30 every night. So you got a freshman season with Devin, and back in the early 80s, BYU players were going on missions, but not every player uh, was going football, basketball, but you decided that you were going to go. I mean, I was raised in a, a good home, and my father served a mission. My older brother served a mission. It was something I always wanted to do. I planned on it. I had my freshman year. 
you know, the coaching staff asked me mid, mid first season, you know, what are your plans? In retrospect, I probably should have told them that I was undecided, but I did tell them I was planning on a mission and, uh, they, they kind of altered my playing time towards the end of that freshman season. I, I think they, they recognized I was going to go. They started playing other guys that they thought would be around the next year. And my numbers suffered and our play suffered. My last 10 games of the season, I didn't play, you know, a whole lot like I did the first 20 games of that freshman season. I think it was because of that. They knew I was headed on a mission. If I'd been smart, I was just an 18-year-old kid. I probably would have told them, no, I'm not going on a mission. But that's just me. I never had any master plan or... I, I just didn't do things contrived like that. I I just basically told the truth and and did what was in my heart. So that was just a glorious experience to go to Argentina for a couple of years. As I mentioned in the intro, you averaged 20-plus in your last three seasons, shot better than 50% in all three seasons. And one of your teammates that helped you to some of those numbers was a guy named Marty Hawes. For fans who know only his sons, Tyler and TJ, what do they need to know about Tyler and TJ's dad, your teammate, for those three seasons? Well, Marty was the fastest guard I'd ever seen. He was easily the fastest guy on our team. And he played wide receiver in high school at Hillcrest. And, uh, I believe he was an all-state wide receiver, but he was just an incredible athlete. He could fly up and down the floor. You know, heck, we'd try and get him the ball on a rebound, just get him on the fly and just let him go. Coast to coast, he was he was unreal. Came into his own the year after I left, I think it was his senior year, immediately had like a 40-point game early on in that season. Marty could have been a wide receiver, too. He could have been on that football team. That's how good he was. But he was a dear friend and a tremendous competitor, great familial support. His dad was at all the practices and would watch us, knew all the guys on the team. And so it's no wonder that Tyler became so good and, and, and TJ is obviously still there. Your junior season gets a lot of attention for, for a lot of obvious reasons. Uh, the 87-88 season opened 17-0, and number two national ranking, and, and everyone knows that, that you had to go to UAB, and, and that's where the streak ended. But maybe not everyone realizes, I think you had a home game with Utah on a Thursday and then had to go to Alabama for an early game on Saturday. Does that, is that right? It was back in the day when not many games were on television. So we, we accepted a game Thursday night home against the Utes to go to 17-0. and It was a late start. I do remember that. We beat them to go to 17-0. and But as we typically did, we're on the first flight the next morning. And so it was an early morning wake-up call Friday morning for that flight out to Birmingham. And the game in Birmingham was Saturday at noon. And it's unfair to say we weren't ready for the game. We were ready for the game, but things just didn't go our way. And maybe our, you know, clocks were off and we kind of were all looking around like, what's going on with us? You know, I didn't, I didn't feel like we were full of our press. And I guess Arizona had lost the night before. So they were the previous number one team in the nation. And so maybe we were uh, a little bit anxious to go out there and beat the next team and claim a number one ranking in the country. But they sure handed it to us. And I don't remember it being close, Greg. 102 to 83. That's a, that's a high-scoring college game. Wow. How do you then remember the end of that season for as crazy as it started? How do you remember how that season finished for you? The junior season came to a disappointing halt. Uh, I know we won the WAC. We got beaten the WAC tournament, and that was disappointing. It didn't really affect our seed as we went a number four seed. Uh, I believe we opened up against North Carolina Charlotte. Yep and beat them to advance to a second-round game. Second-round game was against Louisville. The problem with Louisville was they were like 17 and 12 that year. But Louisville had seven future pros on that team, <laughs> from Purvis Ellison to Felton Spencer to LeBradford Smith to Kenny Williams to Kenny Payne to Herbert Crook. They had seven future pros on that team. You know, not that we feared them in any way. They were just an underachieving super talented team and obviously well coached. Danny Crum is their coach. Who's John Wooden's assistant. We did, you know, at least two NCAA titles by then. Anyway, they got us. I think we all had higher hopes, you know, early in the season, mid season, and even heading into the tournament. But uh, I don't know whether we peaked early, but we may have, you know, we just, it didn't feel like we were the same team late in that, in that season as we were mid season when we were rolling. Your senior year got off to a 2-4 and four start, and, and the team never really did get rolling the same way, did they, in your last year? 
you know, we lacked talent, and we had a lot of freshmen trying to come in and play roles, and it, it was a it was a challenging year for me. I, I seriously contemplated turning pro my junior year, and my mom begged me to school, stay in school and get my degree and do all that, and I, I felt a responsibility to the program to stick around and play all four years. Uh, in retrospect, I probably should have gone pro, at least not that I would have been drafted any higher. I probably would have been drafted about the same, but I, I just the senior year just didn't didn't do wonders for us as a ball club, and we just didn't have the... The resources. We lost Jeff Chapman, Jim Yusevich, who was such a big, powerful center. And we also lost Brian Taylor. And he, he's not talked about enough uh, in terms of the kind of player he was. He was an unbelievable shooter, but probably the best passer I've ever played with. And granted, I played three years with Larry Bird, and I toured for a year with Magic Johnson after I stopped playing. So that puts Brian ahead of those two. And we had a, a special connection on the floor. Not only were we, were we the closest of friends off the court, but we just had this chemistry on the court. And I knew what he was thinking. He knew what I was thinking. And if I made a move or spun a certain way, the ball was going to hit me in my hand. And so while everyone focused on the front court losing a couple of real big stars, the biggest loss for me that year was a guy who knew me and knew where to find me, knew where I, knew where I liked the ball, and, and I was trying to find the same rhythm with new guys. It's almost like I was an all-pro wide receiver, and now I had a new quarterback. It is break time on Behind the Mic. When we come back, the uh, pro and post-hoops career of Michael Smith and where you'll be seeing and hearing him this upcoming NBA season as well. This is Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel. We're brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. My conversation with Michael Smith continues and concludes right after this on BYU Radio. Welcome back to Behind the Mic, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. Here's your host, Craig Rubel. Continuing our conversation with former BYU Hoops All-American and first-round NBA draft pick Michael Smith. And Mike, as we uh, went into the break, we were wrapping up your college career at BYU, and you're picked 13th overall by the Boston Celtics, who I think had just sent Danny Ainge to the Sacramento Kings. Is my timeline right? Your timeline is spot on. I, I miss Danny. I miss playing together. And so, yes, he was Sacramento for that short half season. That's the, the season before I get there. And then he goes on to Phoenix and Portland after that. Everybody seems to have a Larry Bird story. When you get asked, do you have one or two go-to stories involving Larry in your time with the Celtics? I'll never forget my, my rookie year. So the first time I check into him, check into the game for him, which is what I did, he comes back in about two minutes into the second quarter, and I've got the ball one time. I've taken one shot. I did not make it. And so, you know, when you check in for a guy and you slap hands and you you exchange and go to the bench, Larry says to me, nice try, Mike. You played hard, but you were killing us. That's my my opening line from my buddy Larry Bird, who was my buddy, but he, he just didn't have the ability to tell you how he felt about you. It was just different era and different. He was different that way. He wasn't open like that. My first week of practice, I challenged him to horse every day after practice. And not trick shot horse, but just long distance shooting horse. And Greg, I'd never met anybody uh, who was my size who could outshoot me. Never. And and so I was pretty confident, and so I said, let's, let's, let's just shoot. And he goes, well, how do you want to play it? And I said, well, I said, let's just play till somebody gets up five. By make it and you miss, I'm up one, and I got control of the board, and I'll go shoot again. And if I miss it and you make it the same shot, uh, then you get a point, and you get control of the shot. So we did that the first five practices, and I beat him three of the first four days. Mm. Three of the first four days. And we weren't shooting for any money, nothing. It was just, you know, pride and all that. Well, Friday comes around. This is preseason. And I've never seen anybody so mad. He wouldn't speak to me. He, he was angry. He wouldn't look at me. And then sure enough, practice ended. And he goes, okay, Rook, you ready? And I go, yeah, let's do it again. Granted, I've beaten three out of four. So I'm feeling pretty good about things. He goes, okay, we're shooting for $20 now. Every shot is worth $20. 
and we're going to keep track the whole year. And I said, okay, fine. I said, uh, and what about the last four days? I said, you'd be down a little bit. And he shrugged that off, and he goes, no, we're keeping track right now. Uh, Greg, I might have beat him one time the rest of the way. And we shot every day after practice. He just either kept extending the range or kept extending the bets. And, you know, back in the day, we'd get on a bus, and our equipment manager would hand us an envelope full of per diem of cash. (laughs) And there was Larry (coughs) next to me on the bus with his hand out. Okay, Rook, here's what you owe me for this week. And I basically handed him the per diem, you know, the whole year because I wasn't going to back down. But he was supremely confident. And he had this unique ability to convince everybody, uh, including those of us on his team, but most certainly those on the other team, that he was the best. And if they didn't know it, he had either convinced them or told them he was the best by the first quarter, and then he could back it up. He was... He was just a remarkable player. He was incredibly confident and, you know, easily, easily the best that I've ever played with. Uh, if, I, if I had one game on the line and my life depended on it, uh, I want him on my team. And that's over LeBron, Kobe. I don't know about Michael Jordan, but, but I'd want him in a game seven. How do you look back on your time with the Seas and then what took you overseas at that time? You know, it's, uh, it's not frustrating to relive it anymore, but it was frustrating then. Uh, I really felt like it was the best opportunity for me to go to that team, but, but looking back, it wasn't. Because you need to get established in the NBA in your first couple of years, and you need to get established in your own mind and in everyone else's mind. And I would have been better off going into a younger team where there was opportunity to play. Uh, I sat the bench and watched those guys play, and in some in some aspects, in some ways, lost my confidence. And first time in my life, I'm I'm sitting as opposed to playing, and so you know, doubt creeps in. Uh, am I good enough? Can I play with these guys? All those questions come in. And then I had brief moments where I was allowed to start. You know, my rookie year, I went eight games in a row and started and averaged 16 a game and we won seven of the eight. And so then all of a sudden, I'm like, of course I can play with these guys. But I just never really got the chance. And uh, if I had it to do over again, although it wasn't in my nature to be kind of a jerk, I I really should have demanded to be traded. You know, I really should have just said, listen, you're not going to play me, trade me. And I'm unhappy here. I want to go play. And that's not the way I was wired. And I just figured Bird had probably three years probably had four and it'd be the perfect time to step in and replace them but that's not really how it works you need to be a factor and before that period was over and I never really was given that chance to be a factor so that's probably my mistake and you don't get mulligans in life you know not that I take a mulligan Greg off the first tee like you do but (laughs) you you just don't get a second ball you ended up prolonging your professional career outside of the NBA before a return with the Clippers, but there was an interim time there where you explored a bit of the globe. I did. I enjoyed it. I played in Italy and Spain. I found my game again. I found my swagger and my confidence. I led the Spanish league in scoring and free throw percentage and was the leading American scorer in that Italian league. And uh, Basketball became fun again. You know, it wasn't you know, where you were in such a supportive role and a non-factor every night, you were all of a sudden, you know, the guy again. And not that I needed to be the guy, but it was it was a good time. And uh, if I had to summarize it all and look back on it, I should have just knocked on that door every single year. I mean, I, I quit playing at 32, and I think I was in the best shape of my life at like 37, 38 when I had discovered yoga and Pilates and different things, I should have, just, should have kept knocking on that door forever, and regardless of what people thought. But in some ways, when you're released by the Celtics, you know, now all of a sudden everybody was looking for what you couldn't do instead of what you could do. And I should have just been impervious to all that and just said, listen, here, here's who I am, here's what I am, here's what I can do, and, you know, you either like me or you don't. I should have just knocked on the door till I was 38 years old and pretty much your body runs out. But life moved on, and at 32, I embarked on a, a new career. Well, your time with the Clippers kind of created a link with the franchise that you followed or carried through to your career as a broadcaster. You spent working with Ralph Lawler for most, if not all, those years? 
Yeah, it was nine. It was 19 years. The first four of which, many people don't realize, I did uh, radio play-by-play. So I, along with the late great Hot Rod Hunley, uh, am one of the only two who played for the NBA and did radio play-by-play for the NBA. So I, I did that on purpose. When I started my career, I figured there would always be somebody in an analyst role who, you know, had a bigger name or a bigger career. I said, why not develop all the skills of broadcasting and be able to do any, any aspect of it. So I started that way and I actually called the Clippers and just said, can I do your games in Spanish? And they said, no, called me back a couple of weeks later and and said, we're not that thrilled with our radio announcer in English. If you want to send us a tape and, I'd never done anything. I, well, I mean, that's not true. I'd done three years of BYU uh, TV games, but I hadn't done radio and I hadn't done play-by-play, but I watched a game on TV, and believe it or not, in the days of our millennials, I recorded my voice with a microphone and a cassette recorder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Greg, turned down the volume and just did the game as I saw the game with lots of influence from Chick Hearn, who I grew up listening to as a kid and just, you know, trying not to mimic his phrases, but just had uh, a little bit of that style as I called the game and hot rod had a little bit of that style having worked with chick and, and I sent it to the Clippers and they hired me. And so that was about 21 years ago now. And I did not work last year for him, but for 20 years I did, did all their games, the first four of which were radio and play-by-play, and the, the following 15 were television and analyst. With Ralph Lawler, and, and you mentioned Paul James earlier in the interview, and you know Ralph for that franchise was, was PJ for the BYU franchise, if you will. Yeah, and I, I didn't understand any of that uh, when I was playing for P- BYU. I, I did... I didn't know who Paul was, and he traveled with us, and I loved being around him. He was quirky, and he was funny, and he had magic tricks and trivia questions, and we would challenge each other with, you know, memorizing lists. And, I mean, it was – I never thought I'd ever be a broadcaster. And But uh, one moment that I just love is we're at Wyoming, and Paul's sitting there courtside calling the game, and I know – that I have a consecutive free throw thing going. And I know he knows because I just know him. And, and, you know, he's probably mentioned it to me along the way. Hey, you haven't missed a free throw in a while. And I'm like, Paul, you don't talk about that stuff. But sure enough, I knew what the number was going into that game that I needed to make. And so by my sixth free throw, uh, I'm sitting there for a one and one and I make the first of the two. And between the two free throws, I look over at him and he looks at me, and I wink at him, and he gives me a thumbs up, and I could just, even though I couldn't hear what he was saying, there I'm sure he was saying, you know, that Mike had just broken whatever the record was for consecutive free throws made. And so this is like one of those moments you cherish. I looked over, he looked over, we knew it. I'm not sure anyone else in the whole building understood what happened at that very moment, but it was kind of cool. So we definitely had a bond, and, and he was great for Cougar fans forever. And your streak ultimately got to 32, by the way, before uh, before you missed. And it stood for quite a while. Last couple things here, Mike. Uh, your broadcast plans for this season, upcoming NBA season. And then, uh, as I like to do with, with my guests, let our listeners know what your family situation is and name the people in your family and what they're doing and what you're doing. Of course, we know you're broadcasting. What will you be doing this year? Well, I've started building a company, and that had nothing to do with broadcasting, so I'm doing that. Uh, I'm, I'm building a company called Corner 3 Capital. We manage funds, and uh, that's been super challenging and super uh, invigorating for me, as last year was the first year I'm away from sports in general. But I am fortunate enough to have picked up some 22 to 25 nights working for the Utah Jazz this season, so I'm super excited about that. Uh, I'll be alongside Craig Bullerjack for just a handful of games. The other nights I'll be in the studio, I believe, with Alema Harrington. And I love that team. I love the organization. I always have. Uh, I have the greatest respect for them, so I'm fired up. I think they're a top three or top four team in the West. And that's a blessing for me to be back in it and doing it again. So I'll be coming in for those games and excited to see everybody and, and get to do some work. 
As far as my family, um, we live in Southern California. My wife and I, uh, we are a combined family. We both were married once before, but we have 10 children. Uh, six of those are currently studying down in that Provo neck of the woods. There's five at BYU, one at UVU. We have two that are beyond college. Uh, one daughter works in Salt Lake City. Uh, one boy works down here in Southern California. He's the assistant coach for Long Beach State Volleyball, which uh, won the national championship a year ago. He played four years for them and captained them and was their middle blocker. I've had a girl play basketball for the Y. I've had two boys go up there and play some volleyball. And I've had four kids go on missions. <laughs> and I have a couple of 10-year-olds coming up still. So my wife and I combined children of five and three, and then we had twins 10 years after our youngest. And so those twins, boy and girl, are 10 years old, and they are the ballroom dance champions of Southern California. They're a handful, and they're keeping us young, and we're chasing them through all their activities. And I don't know, it's been quite a ride. Yeah, your life has, has run the gamut in uh, professional ways and family ways, and it's all very, very interesting. I'm glad you're able to take some time tonight and share some of your life with us and reconnect with our listeners. And, of course, they'll be seeing and, and hearing you locally, which is exciting, and I hope to see you when you're in town over, over the next few months. Michael, a pleasure. Thank you for coming on and spending time. You got it, Greg. You do a great job, and I'm thrilled to be on. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you so much. That's Michael Smith and our Catching Up with the Cougars segment brought to you by BYU Alumni. BYU Alumni chapters helping students in need and spreading the influence of the Y around the world. Stay connected for good and find your chapter at alumni.byu.edu slash chapters. We're back to wrap up tonight's show right after this. Thanks for making Behind the Mic part of your night on this Wednesday, October 17th, or part of your week if you're listening uh, on demand. Uh, Thanks to my guests this evening, BYU men's golf coach Bruce Brockbank and former BYU basketball All-American and current NBA broadcaster Michael Smith. Next week, we will not be on the air as we bring you some live Cougar hoops. BYU versus St. Martin's in the Cougars exhibition opener. We're back with you on Halloween night. Thanks going out to coordinating producer Terry South with production assistance from Cole Wissinger. Appreciate also general manager Don Shaline. I'm Greg Grubel. Thanking you for tuning in to Behind the Mic. We'll talk to you in two weeks here on BYU Radio. Till then, good night. You have been listening to Behind the Mic with the voice of the Cougars, Greg Grubel. Brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. Listen to the podcast at BYUradio.org.